to the Out of Ink podcast with myself, B. Baranowska and Molly Lemon. This is the podcast where two anxious creatives talk openly and honestly about life as an artist. Hello, Mrs. Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the Mrs. Bit. Well, you, Matt, you got married. It makes me sound old. I want to stay Miss. No, you're a wife now, Molly. You're Mrs. Lemon. No, I didn't think about that. (laughs) How does it feel being Mrs. Lemon? Um, hmm. It feels like, thank God, no more wedding planning. It feels like pure relief, honestly. (laughs) It's done. It's over. (laughs) That's just what every bride wants to hear. Well, it just wasn't, it wasn't me, the whole thing. I wanted a nice ring and I wanted a nice dress and then I hadn't thought past that. (laughs) And it's been three years of planning how. Well, as someone who was lucky enough to be able to attend the wedding of the century, it was just delightful and I loved every second of it. It can't be the wedding of the century because your wedding's next and there's unlimited pancakes, <laughs> which actually trumps my no, wedding. No, I loved your wedding. It was it was perfect in every way. It was so you and Sam and so personal. And I actually loved that there was only 30 people there because it felt just so intimate and lovely. It did. We had a good top table, didn't we? We didn't have a top table. <laughs> Me and Sam sat down and then B came over and said, can I sit with you? Your mum said I could sit with you. No, no. Your mum said, I think Molly would really like it if you went and sat with her. And I just felt so honoured by that. I thought that was lovely, so I came and sat with you. But I did feel there was no one else on the top table. It was just Molly, Sam, and their third wheel, B. Yeah, but it was it was lovely. And my godmother joined. Yes, me. eventually, yes, some other people came, and I felt less like a third wheel. It was a very casual wedding, hence the lack of a top table. But it was honestly lovely, and don't think we can talk about it much more. Otherwise, we might just start crying again. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> When it was all over and B was saying goodbye to my parents and telling them how lovely it all was, she started tearing up and then we both just started sobbing. And then we just were stood in Molly's parents' kitchen laughing and crying. It was a great lasting impression to leave, I think. It was good. I really felt like one of the family when I left. I honestly didn't want to leave that magical place. It was really nice. I don't mind. We've already booked you to come and visit again next month. We've basically adopted being into the family I'm now. so glad. I can't wait to return. So, um, voice note quote of the day, Molly. Molly said, okay. Molly said, I got you something for your birthday today. I thought it was ugly, but I think you'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) It came out so wrong. It came out so wrong. Listen to that voice note and I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really ugly and I wouldn't have it in my house. (laughs) But I saw it and I thought of you. There's no saving that. No, you've got really, like, out there taste and your house is amazing and it's full of personality and my house is quite bland and it just wouldn't go in my house. But I was like, I think B will like it, but because I think it's quite ugly, I can't tell. I feel like I have no idea. I literally can't wait to find out what it is. I feel like it might be, like, a stuffed owl or something along those lines. It's not a stuffed owl, I can tell you that. I think that would fit quite nicely in with my decor. Oh, well, I'll have a look out for you. <laughs> no, I, no, no, I've got, I don't need any taxidermy, thanks. Um, yeah, because we're now on the build-up to your... Right, so basically, since we last recorded the podcast, I'm a year older and I'm married, 
And now, we're leading up to Bea's birthday and Bea's marriage, it's all changed. <laughs> Our lives are so paralleled. Everything happens at the same time for us. Well, I showed Molly a picture of myself today as a child. Um, and Molly was like, wait there a minute. I've got an identical photo. Now, I just thought she meant it was just a little bit similar. And she came back and we are just dressed in basically the same thing. And it just confirms that we just are long lost twins. Yeah. I totally agree. It was the same colour dress, basically the same hat and the same awful glasses. Well, I think my hat was a bit better than yours. <laughs> Alright. Mine had bees on it. I think that trumps yours. Fine. Well, you, you know, you love straw hats after last weekend. Oh yeah, I was where I did go to Exeter train station and quite... Well, it was basically my second wedding dress and a straw hat and I looked like a crazy person. Molly said goodbye to me so abruptly. We were stood at the <laughs> station and having, like, we had just cried quite a lot. And she said, <laughs> OK, I've got to go, I'll cry, bye. And and then just walked away. <laughs> well, I thought we'd already embarrassed ourselves at my house. And I just thought there were a lot of people around. The last thing we needed to, was to be sobbing in public. And then you messaged me and said, I've been quietly sobbing the whole way on the that train. That was accurate. So you just embarrassed yourself That your was own. accurate. I was crying. You would just look really mad. I think our relationship so intense. So when we were crying in the kitchen at my parents' house, I caught Sam's eye, and I could just see he was thinking, what is going on? <laughs> he just couldn't understand why we were crying. It was such an emotional weekend from start to finish. Basically, our friendship's pretty intense. We were just a bit overwhelmed by everything. Yeah, we're very close. Well, after the wedding, we walked to the uh, field where we were having the reception and Sam disappeared, so all my first wedding photos are with B. <laughs> I was like, well, Sam's not here, but B's here. I'm going to get the wedding pictures back and they'll all just be me and Can't you. Can't wait. Can't wait to see those. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we've bored everyone with the wedding chat last week, so let's move on to our anxiety scale. Molly, what is the anxiety scale for this week? Well, I chose it and I... Basically, most days you criticise me (laughs) on what I choose to have for breakfast. Rightly so, I think, but fine. I think bolognese is a perfectly good (laughs) breakfast. No, Molly, no. It's veggie bolognese. It's a bit more acceptable. I mean, a bit of slaw. I honestly, sometimes, if I've got lunch, which is leftover dinner from last night, it looks so good. I'll just dive straight on in at seven in the morning. Almost as disgusting as eating raw gooseberries, but I'll let it go. Does does bolognese feature on your scale? No, because it's not really breakfast. Oh, you do admit it's not breakfast-appropriate food then? Well, I did go through a phase the other year of every morning I'd have two veggie burgers for breakfast, just on their own. Right, why don't you talk us through your (laughs) breakfast-appropriate, hopefully, anxiety scale? Okay, so this is representing my least anxious day ever, um, at number 10, and it is... Either Easter morning or Christmas morning, <laughs> and it's just whatever chocolate you've been given, and as much as you can stuff in your mouth before your parents say, don't spoil your lunch. Is that a breakfast food? Yes, yes, it is. You get given chocolate at Christmas and Easter, and it's there for breakfast. I love chocolate for breakfast. I will let you have that. It's the best. <laughs> and number one, on my, I can't even say it, it's so disgusting. <laughs> but, so this is my most anxious day ever, and it's scrambled egg which is 
horrible. I hate it. With black pudding, which I've never had, but I just would never want to eat that. I love scrambled egg. In general, though, you don't really like egg in any of its forms, do you? I like it fried and boiled, but beyond that, I'm not fussed. Okay. And, and where do you sit today on the breakfast scale? Today, I am crumpets with lots of butter and chocolate spread. Oh, that sounded delightful before you added chocolate spread. What do you have on your crumpets? I just like buttered crumpets. Actually, I really like Marmite on crumpets. That works. I do like Marmite Mm. on crumpets, yeah. But not for breakfast. That's more of an afternoon snack. Anyway, we digress. Okay, I would rate your crumpet six. It's a seven. (gasps) That's so high, Molly. It's my highest ever. Joint highest with your number seven the other week. I guess you are in your... Wedding, honeymoon period, kind of, still. So you should be at yeah, a seven. Yeah, we're going on our honeymoon tomorrow morning, so I'm on the I'm on the wind down. Oh, I'm glad to hear you're at a seven. How lovely. Um, How about you? Okay, so number ten, breakfast of kings, banana pancakes. Um, What I mean by that is like a banana drop scone. I don't know if you've ever made them. It's like, and then, you know, they're like mini ones, and you mash banana in with it, and it's so delicious. <laughs> No? No, I just thought, of course, you couldn't just have pancakes, Be You had to have a banana drop scone. But these are less effort than pancakes because, you know, with pancakes, you've got to make sure that they don't stick to the pan. You've got to flip them over. Mm. These are so chunky and you just can't go wrong okay. with them. Well, I've never had a banana drop scone, but please, can you make me some? Yes, I will make you some when you come over and help me string up cranes and maybe have to stay the night because you realise that it's a five-day job. That sounds good. And could you leave the banana out and then I'll be happy? I know you don't love banana, but it works. It works in the drops gone. <laughs> I'll try it. If anyone wants the recipe, I use mumsnet.com for my fantastic <laughs> banana drops guns. <laughs> okay, number one. So just really bad day. I've just put nothing because, you know, some people just don't agree with eating breakfast. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. You could have given me all day and I wouldn't have guessed that. People who just don't agree with eating breakfast upset me because breakfast is like one of the best meals. It's also, how do you do a full day on an empty stomach without Mm. passing out? That upsets me a lot. Nothing is number one. And then today, I am a vegetarian fry-up. I do really like Mm. a fry-up, but I feel like you really have to be in the mood for a veggie fry-up, or fry-ups in general, because they're a lot of food, aren't they? And it's it's just something that I feel like I couldn't have every day. When I have it, I enjoy it, but quite heavy, quite rich. Okay, I think that is... I love a veggie fry-up. I think I think that's because I generally have it in a restaurant, though. I think um, a six. <gasps> ding, ding, ding! You win. Yay! I enjoyed the anxiety scale, and I will continue to find the weirdest breakfast I can and then send you pictures of them really early in the morning because it gives me so much joy to hear your reaction. Good luck beating bolognese because that was just horrifying for me. <laughs> and I had that two days in a row, didn't I? Because there was a lot of laughter. I feel like you always eat bolognese for breakfast. There's just no end. Mm, sometimes pasta. Oh, sometimes you just can't wait for lunch, okay? I would almost count what you're saying there 
as a nothing breakfast. All of your breakfasts are ones because they're lunches, Molly. You are skipping breakfast and just having the world's earliest lunch. Well, the last few mornings I've been having chocolate for breakfast or (laughs) jelly beans. Molly's just taunting me because she's not on a wedding diet anymore. She's fitted (laughs) into the dress. She's got all the photos and she's gone, right, you know what? I'm just going to eat all the unhealthy food in the world and that's fine. And then she's just been sending me pictures of all this chocolate, jelly beans, honeycomb. (laughs) I mean, you name it, she's eaten it this week. Right, Molly, what's the topic for today? Uh, I can't actually remember what we said last time. I think it was criticism, but we were also thinking it was about rejection as well. We're putting the two in together. Yeah, criticism and rejection, because they live in the same box, really. Yeah. Okay, so thank you, as always, to everyone who sent in their questions. Um, We'll read out as many as we can get through in the time, and let's begin. Question one. What is the most helpful piece of criticism you've ever received? I think that... Me being my own self-critic has probably been the most helpful thing for me because Mm -hmm. when I realised that my style was changing, I was kind of brave enough to be like, right, okay, I'll, I'll just leave that behind and start again. And I think sometimes you have to be able to acknowledge that. It's hard to because you're really attached to your old work sometimes. But yeah, being self-critical has huge benefits. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think the best criticism or the most helpful criticism I received was in my first year of uni, I was sat there, it was like the first month, and I was saying, I'm a printmaker, I want to make landscapes. I knew who I was as an artist really early on. That's impressive. Well, my tutor said, no, you're not. You're an artist, you're not a printmaker. And it basically persuaded me out of the print room. And then for the next three years, I made things that weren't prints most of the time. And... Even though I think he was wrong in the sense of I really am a printmaker, it helped me realise that and I have no doubt now that printmaking's the technique for me. What was his reasoning for persuading you out of the print room? Well, I think if you pigeonhole yourself too early on in art, you kind of get stuck in a rut. So I tried lots of other things like video art and performance art and embroidery and I did enjoy it all and I learned a lot does he know now that you're a world famous printmaker (laughs) I'm not world famous and I don't think so well you're the closest thing to a world famous printmaker that I know but I think it would be good advice for most artists at that age but I just really did know who I was and now I definitely know because I disproved Mm, it. I don't think I did know who I was. That's why I think I said about being self-critical of work that I just thought, this isn't me, I need to try something else, I need to try again. Right. Do you get ridiculous criticism for things? Ridiculous criticism? Mm. Like really severe criticism or like just completely wrong? I guess it means, yeah, really over the top or really harsh criticism. I would say no, I've never received any criticism that's made me want to go and cry somewhere. Oh, really? I think so. Not even at uni? Um, my uni course was, as you just described, basically, trying out loads of different art forms. So I was never fully attached until I realised that I wanted to be an illustrator. So I probably was criticised on, like, my shoddy typography or my really bad, what's it called, stop animation skills, but never on what I actually wanted to do, I don't think. Oh, really? So at uni, I did fine art, and we had crits. It must have been every 
few weeks, every month or something. And every single crit I had, I either cried in the crit or I cried outside the room. I think maybe I really don't like criticism or really don't deal well with criticism because I must have been criticised throughout uni and I've just blocked it out of my mind. Or it didn't affect you that much and you were sure of what you were doing. Maybe, I'm not sure. I always went into the crit quite confident in what I was doing. I'd been working on it for weeks. I thought, this is this is the thing. I've done it. This is great. Mm. I'd show my work. They'd I wouldn't say they'd tear it apart, but they'd definitely critique it. And then all my dreams would be shattered and I'd leave feeling really angry at everyone. And then a week later, I'd realise they were all right. Oh, no. I had really nice tutors. I had this tutor and I we did uh, an illustration for a poetry book cover, it was. And it was a competition. And it was... A very competitive competition and she said to me this is really great I think you're gonna win and I, I was never going to win I wasn't even that confident in it myself but she really bigged me up and made me feel like I had a chance and then I didn't win but I think that was lovely of her to give me that hope that I might have done yeah but then your hope was dashed it was a huge competition I don't think I was ever gonna win she was just being really nice yeah but I think you should prepare for the worst what is it's it? my favorite saying ever and it's plan for the worst hope for the best is it not prepare nope. for the worst hope for the best? No. Nope. Okay, sorry. Sorry, I didn't realise. My dad drummed that into me because it's his favourite saying too. So do you remember any specific comments that really upset you then? Well, I remember it was my, my last crit was one of the worst. So I was bringing in my final piece after three years of uni. Oh, that was an important one then. It was the most important one. And it was a hospital bed I'd bought off eBay. It was like an old hospital bed <laughs> with a sheet that had taken me over three months to embroider so a lot of investment and I the sheet was lying over the bed and around the bed there was like a see-through curtain so you couldn't quite read what was embroidered on the sheet and you had to like put your head in it's quite interactive wow that's cool and then um they were like no no this isn't (laughs) working for me and I was I honestly because you're a few weeks from the end of three years you've put everything into this and they just don't like it so that was a bit devastating but then I remember so obviously then I cried because that was the routine and then my tutor talked to me and he said have you ever tried standing the bed up on its end so I stood the bed up so it was stood on the bottom and then so it was basically really tall and then I hung the sheet from the bed and it hung vertically and was it, it was delightful. It was, yeah, so oh. much better. So that was helpful criticism then? It was all helpful, but it all made me cry. <laughs> right, next question. How do you stop ruminating on one bad comment amongst hundreds of positive ones? I've got a really simple answer for you here, and that is just delete that comment if you've got one comment and it's really upsetting you and it's surrounded by really lovely positive thing I mean it does depend what the comment is but I've had them on my Instagram in the past where it's not been helpful and it's just made me upset and I've just gone delete problem solved yeah but you can physically delete a comment but someone might make a comment to you in real life and you can't delete things from your brain we live in a social media world Molly really don't we I mean (laughs) most of our interactions are on Instagram but you're right, you're right, you can't delete comments in real life. They lead to they lead to insecurities. Sometimes if you get one bad comment, it is really hard not to sit with it forever. But the thing is, you do need to try and put it to the back of your head and move on. And if it's constructive and you think it might be true, then listen to it and try and improve, try and work through it. Mm, yeah, it depends if it, you think it's constructive or just nasty. 
Has criticism ever made you stop making for a time? And if so, how did you overcome it? I, again, with my self-criticism, I think my self-criticism has probably stopped me making when I've been feeling bad about myself or my business or thinking that I've been comparing myself to other people and thinking that they're better than me. That has stopped me making new work, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And as we've said in the past, if you've released new work and it's not sold, that does feel like rejection and criticism. Mm, That's really hard to deal with, especially if it's something, and it is usually something you've put a lot of time into and, and, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it, making it, producing it, getting it to the final stages. And then when it doesn't go down well and nobody buys it, it that does feel like its own form of rejection. Yeah, and I find the thing that does least well is the thing you're most confident in and you like the most. So then you start to just doubt everything because you thought you were confident in it and then it was just all taken away. That happens to me all the time. I go through phases. I go through my shop and I think, right, I should delete some of the products that I don't like anymore. And then I'll think about it for a few days because I have to think on things. I don't do them straight away. And then I'll sell one of the things that I was thinking of delisting and then I'll think, oh dear. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll leave that one for another few years but it will always be something that I just think no nobody wants that anymore it's old and it's had its time how do you pick yourself up when you've been rejected from something like a shop or a gallery I got some recent advice and experience in this yeah so I've recently been accepted to sell on not on the high street congratulations thank you but I think it's just important to acknowledge the fact that I have applied twice before a few years ago now I was really upset with them about it and hence didn't apply again for a little while but I did reapply this year because I had lots of new products new product photography and I just thought it was worth another go but I just think that's worth mentioning because you do get rejected sometimes and you have to pull yourself back up and not let it put you off trying again yeah um I can I just join the I've been rejected from not on the high street club <laughs> because I'm I'm there that's me um and I haven't applied again because I'm not as brave as you I think what I found was quite hard about the rejection was that they didn't put any specific comments as to why I had been rejected they just said oh your application hasn't been successful at this time and for someone to be able to move on from that and improve it just would be helpful for them to give you some some feedback, some criticism. Yeah. I guess so many people apply, they don't have the time. And it's for them, it's like, well, we don't, we don't want them, so we're not going to spend some time helping them better themselves. They're just mm. moving on. I guess so. I just don't think it's a, very, it's a very nice thing to do, really, because that leaves someone who maybe the only issue was that their photos were slightly off. Yeah. And it might leave them thinking that their whole work and their whole brand isn't good enough and that's not very nice. Hey, don't badmouth them now because you got in and they might go, oh, well, B's talking badly about us, get her off the shop. No, as I said, I am glad I persevered. <laughs> I do believe if you want something hard enough, you can get there. In my case, I did think maybe my product photography wasn't quite good enough. And as I say, I just worked on my portfolio and tried again. Perseverance is always key when you're a small business owner. Mm. I have a story about applying to a gallery. So it was early on in my career and it was about five years ago. And I decided to walk around Bristol, which is where I was living at the time, and go into some galleries and ask them if I could stock them. That's so scary doing that face to face, isn't it? It's so much nicer hiding behind an email. 
Yeah, but I just thought it'd be better if I go in face face and I can see the gallery. I just don't know why. I just thought, right, I'm going to do this. And for someone who's got social anxiety, it's scary. It's so scary. And I, the first place I chose, I walked in and I said, hi, um, I make art and I was just wondering if you'd be interested in stocking my work. And this grumpy old man turned around and said, no, you'll never make money making art. Um, That's an awful thing to say to someone who he hadn't even seen your art. He hadn't seen my art and he said, there's no money in it, you're not going to make it, don't bother. But he was running an art gallery. I know, well I cl- it clearly wasn't going very well that day because he was very down on the whole business and he basically clearly. completely crushed me. I was just out of uni and he basically said, there's no life for you in this, you won't ever make any money and just completely crush all my dreams and was not nice, not in like a kind way, like save yourself more. It was so bitter the way he spoke to me. And then That's I awful. left a bit upset and went home. So that was the end of that day. <laughs> oh no. I want to go back there and tell him that I've actually done well and I'm now living off my art, but I don't think he'll be there anymore. I think he should because it might give him the confidence boost that he needs. No, honestly, here's customer service. If it was anything like the way he spoke to me, he really won't be there anymore, so I won't even make Mm. the trip. Are you ever self-critical, and how do you know if you're being too hard on yourself or not hard enough? Well, I think that I've answered a few of those questions (laughs) by saying how self-critical I was, so I'm just a firm yes there. Yeah, I am really self-critical, and if you're not self-critical, I don't think you'd be a very good creative, because Mm. then you just always think your work was amazing, and if you think that, your work's really probably not amazing, because you're not changing it all the time. No, and not everything that you make is always going to be good enough, that's just a fact, that pushes you to keep making new things and trying new styles and techniques, I think. Yeah, but you can definitely be too self-critical because you need to be, I think you need to be really self-critical because that's how you better yourself. But if you're too self-critical, you're going to be like a deer in the headlights. Nothing Mm. you make is good enough. You won't release new work and you'll just be a complete mess. I'm sure that Quentin Blake drew like a few BFGs that were slightly wonky or like a few witches with like dodgy hair before he was like, no, that's the one. Well, isn't the BFG quite wonky anyway? I feel like they're always a bit wonky. That's part of the charm. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Maybe he was maybe he was extra extra maybe he wasn't wonky enough and he went, No, no, I need to just, you know, wonky up my lines. I'm just saying, I'm sure he went through many, many drafts before making what to the untrained eye might look like mm. an initial sketch that made it through, but actually I think there was probably quite a process behind it. Sorry, I'm a bit of a Quentin Blake fan. I think all great artists are really self-critical. You won't find a, a good artist who's not, in my opinion. Hmm. Do you have a go-to person to ask for advice, knowing they will give you honest feedback and be just the right level of critical? I quite often go to my dad. The last time I went to my dad, I went to him with my new landscapes that I'd made. Mm. My dad is such a big fan of my work and I just love him so much. Is that why you go to him? Because it's always positive? No, 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 because he's really honest. But Mm. because he is such a big fan, he does usually like things. Mm. Um, Anyway, this time I, I took my new landscapes to him. I didn't hear from him for a little while. I'd emailed them. And I, I spoke to him on the phone. I said, oh, Dad, did you see those landscapes that I emailed you? And he said, yeah, yeah, saw those. And I was like, oh, what did you think of them then? You didn't give me any feedback. And he said, I think they were just a bit too green. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was like, but 
but their landscapes and their fields and and of course they're going to be green and I was a bit taken aback by it and um I think he feels really bad because he liked them but he he just he failed to give any positive feedback alongside the fact they were too green and then I haven't actually done one since and he thinks that's his fault and it's not purely his fault but because he is such a big fan and I do really care about what he thinks it did just make me think oh maybe they I don't know maybe they need a bit more work but I do tend to go to Molly now with with recent work saying what do you think about this she's my colleague my one and only Mm. colleague really yeah I go to you and um Sam but as I've said before I listen to what you say and what Sam says I do the opposite so I've got a, whoever I ask, I know where I'm going with it. <laughs> so I'm sometimes too honest. Because I, basically, when I go to someone for advice, normally if I'm asking, I want reassurance, I don't want the truth. Mm-hmm. I should probably warn people of that before I ask them. Because then if they're at all critical, I'll be like, oh, is that what you think? And I won't take it very well. I do want the truth, I think, but I want the truth with a nice sugar coating. So you can Mm. say the landscapes are too green, but first you have to say they're really beautiful. I I love them. They're such an interesting direction. And then you can say, but maybe a little bit too green, you know? Yeah, it's got to be done kindly. Hmm. Yeah, my dad didn't not do it kindly. As I say, he is he is a huge fan of my work. I just think this was this was just one of our weird conversations that we had that will stick with me, I think. Yeah, I think it's good to have someone to go to who you know will just lie through their teeth if you just want reassurance. Mm. I is don't really you? have that. Well, I think you're more... You'll be kinder to me than Sam. Sam will sometimes be like, no, I don't think so. And then I'll walk out the room in a strop because I didn't want to hear that, even though <laughs> I asked him. I think I know how to be kind, but also helpful. Like, if if I do think something needs changing. Like, when you asked me about your certificates, I yeah. think I gave you helpful feedback there that kind of was useful and you took that away. You didn't actually give me any feedback. I was redesigning my certificates that go with my prints and I said, how should I redesign this? And and you said, I think you should do some foliage and every so often put a B. And I took it so literally, I just copied exactly what you said and you went, yep, that's exactly what I thought. (laughs) So I basically just stole your idea. No, you didn't. You did it in your own way and it looks lovely. Thank you. You were right. It was a good idea. I'll be taking 10% of sales from now on. Thanks. Okay. That's fine. I don't think I take criticism very well because I'm really sensitive. I'm also really sensitive. Like, really sensitive. (laughs) Yeah, and I was doing a bit of research today and I saw there's a few studies that suggest that sensitive people are more likely to be creative. Molly, are you going to throw scientific facts at me? That's not fair. Yeah. Basically... Creative people are likely to be sensitive because they have heightened sensitivity. So they're going to be like smells, sights, sounds. You're going to notice emotions. You're going to notice your surroundings more. And that's more likely to make you a creative person. And you're more likely to be a perfectionist. And if you're a perfectionist, you're really pushing yourself further with your work and you're really trying to better yourself. You're never going to give up because you're always going to be feeling like there's something more for you. I think... You're right, I yeah. think if you're sensitive, it is going to work in your favour in creativity. It's a bit ironic because I think most creatives, because if you're sensitive 
you're more likely to turn out creative. Most creatives are quite sensitive and we're the ones having really intense criticism a lot of the time because what we produce comes directly from us. So often We're not the only anxious artists, Molly. We know this. We've got a lot of feedback from this podcast from a lot of lovely people who are also anxious and also artists. I Mm. definitely think there's so many, so many creatives can relate. Such lovely feedback. I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you, really, because both me and Molly have just received so many lovely Instagram messages and emails of people saying that, you know, we're keeping them company while they're working, they're finding what we're talking about really useful, and it's so, so lovely to hear. So do keep sending Mm. in your messages, because it's just really lovely. And every time, usually it's me, has a bit of a wobble about the podcast and is worried about it. You can send me a screenshot from someone that has just messaged you mm. to say how much they're enjoying it and then it helps me realise that we need to keep going. What's the worst rejection you've ever experienced and did it shape who you are today? This is a really easy answer for me because there's one rejection that stands out beyond any others and there have been a lot of rejections. So I think it was 2019... I'd been doing wood engraving for two years and I thought basically all that time I'd known about the Society of Wood Engravers and I knew every year they did an annual exhibition and I thought how amazing to be part of that exhibition and I thought I'm not ready yet and I waited and I waited and then I created this print I was really really proud of. I felt a bit confident applying. (laughs) Which print was it that you It was the Malvern Hills print again. The one that came up in episode one. I love that one, yeah. I was so proud of it. I'd never done a print that big or that many layers. And I was just... Maybe when... I went in... For someone who's not confident, I went in quite like, I'm proud of this. This is good. I think this is the one. Yeah. Because I'd waited quite a while to apply. And I applied and I got rejected. And it wasn't just getting rejected for a print I was really proud of. It was like getting rejected from a technique that I was new to and already felt a bit insecure about and like, Mm. oh, am I good enough? And then I felt like all the wood engravers in the world sat around, discussed my work and then were like, no, she's not good enough. And it crushed me. But haven't you since got into the exhibition? Yeah, so basically that was really hard. I remember for a couple of months I was really, really down and I did a post on Instagram about it, not naming the exhibition, but just saying how much it had affected me and it really shouldn't have there are so many talented artists why should I have got in basically but it did really affect me and then I applied the next year and got in but it took so much to apply Mm. because I was so worried I couldn't make it through another rejection from them yeah I do understand that (laughs) you were just scared of another rejection weren't you what did you apply what print did you apply the second time with odyssey it's a picture of a a scuba diver and a print i was less confident in than the first so it just Mm. shows you how subjective it is but basically i've been rejected from so many things i've been rejected from a craft fair that i've been wanting to get into for so many years i think i've been rejected five times but it was (laughs) the one time from the society of wood engravers which crushed my soul and (laughs) it's really helped getting in a second time but it does show you 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 need to be brave and keep trying. I think you've been braver than me. I've not really applied for many shows or things like that. Um, my answer to this question is that when I was in my last year of uni, 
and I really I really got into my illustration style and I knew what I was doing and I was drawing quite a lot of buildings and I just have always loved the National Trust I've always been a member I grew up going to National Trust properties with my parents I just loved them as an organization and I just got it in my head that I was going to do illustrations for the National Trust that was what I wanted to do and um when I left uni it turned out that a friend of a friend knew the lady who worked at the National Trust and was like in charge of design or illustration I don't know she she was mm. high up she she was high up in the National Trust so I similarly to you I just thought I had it in the bag I was like well <laughs> I've got that sounds so awful doesn't it but you are confident at first because you haven't been knocked yet I'd done one of my final projects I'd done was a really nice guide to Montacute House which is a National Trust house in Somerset that I love and I spent so much time doing so many illustrations and I'd made a little fold-out leaflet and in my opinion it was just beautiful anyway (laughs) I I contacted them and I was like look I would absolutely love to do brochures for your for any property really that you have that you have me but let's start with Montacute because I've done that one and I just never, I just never heard back from them. And I was so crushed, but I didn't even get an email saying no. I honestly just never got a reply. And Maybe it went into the spam folder. I was so, so upset by it, Molly, because mm. I pinned all my hopes and dreams. And in my dissertation that I'd written in uni where we had to say... Uh, what we were going to be doing in in five years time or who we were going to be working for and I just filled the whole thing being like yeah I'm going to work for National Trust I'm going to do illustrations for the National Trust and yeah it just felt to me like the biggest rejection and mm-hmm. I still like the National Trust I was still going to the National Trust but you <laughs> you're know, not just boycotting them then a little part of me just is a bit disappointed in them because I just think I could have made really lovely brochures for them Hey, there's still time. I have had my fair share of dealings with the National Trust, actually. <laughs> um, Snow's Hill Manor. Oh, that's one of my favourite National Trust properties. Mm. I love that one. That's the one, um, and it's... What's the name of the man? And he collected loads of objects, and he... Yeah, I should know, because I actually spent a week in the cellar there as artist in residence. Oh, wow. Mm, they're really lovely. Anyway, a separate National Trust. I'm not bad-mouthing the National Trust. They're amazing. But a separate National Trust venue contacted me asking for the rights to one of my designs um, so I couldn't sell it anywhere anymore. And they wanted to make it into, I think it was 11 different items and they'd have the rights to the whole image. How much do you think they offered me financially for this one design that they were going to put on pencils, notebooks, everything? I can't answer this because I think you've already told me and I think it was a ballpark figure of (laughs) £250. No, it was £80. (gasps) No! Yeah. I knew it was I knew it was low but that's taking the biscuit. I mean, I know it's a charity, but I've got to eat, you know? <laughs> and also, they didn't just want my design, they wanted me to do all the graphic design work. They were going to send me the templates of all the products and they were going to ask me to edit it on. No, that's awful. Oh, maybe I'm glad that they rejected me then. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, hang on. We love the National Trust, but I was so offended. I I haven't replied and mm. they followed me up with emails twice. And I really enjoyed not replying. It was quite petty that's of just, me. That's but just that's just not much money at all. Even if they had, even if they had offered to pay you that to put it on one product, that still wouldn't have been enough. No. But put it on ten products and get you to do the graphic design. That's not okay. You know. So I'm. I'm not replying. I'm not replying to them. But I will still enjoy visiting their venues. <laughs> 
Well, I'm glad we've both had uh, slightly tainted experiences with the National Trust. Hey, there's still time. You're still going to be a big time illustrator with them. Let's just hope they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> Maybe they would sponsor the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, give them an email, B. Just tell them not to listen to any past episodes. <laughs> I was really grateful that my granddad, who is 102 in a couple of weeks, was at the wedding. It was so... I was so grateful to have him there. I loved meeting him. He was an amazing man. And he just is so fit and healthy for a nearly 102-year-old. I know. He Honestly, and he's so stubborn. So he was down at the field, which is like a five-minute walk from my parents' house. And it's uphill on the way back. And he wanted to go to the house. And I said, OK, Grandad, my car's down here, so I'll take you up. So we walked to the car, quite yeah. a way to the car. And then I got my key out. He said, no, no, don't want to do the car, don't want to do the car. I was like, but you would agreed you'd get in the car. He's like, I'm not getting in the car. And then he just, like, marched up the hill. But he's a bit, like, wobbly on his feet at the moment. And then he, instead of taking my arm as he was getting up my parents steps he got on all fours and started crawling up the steps (laughs) and it was so stressful maybe stubbornness is one of his uh you know factors of of living a very happy healthy long life just really stubborn and knows what he wants and you know that's got him to 102 fair play but I think it's a family trait because I think I'd be the same. But um, on the wedding day itself, we just had the meal and we were gearing up for the speeches, which weren't on for a very long time. Anyway, he, um, I went over to him to see how he was doing and he said, I don't know what your caterers are doing, but I need my sweet, which is what he calls a pudding. And basically, the caterers weren't there. They'd gone home. Um, they'd only just served it and then they left and we were just there on our own. And I was like, but Grandad, we're going to have speeches now. And he was like, but I need my sweet. Because <laughs> he has his routine, he has his main, and then he has oh, his sweet. So I went and got him a slice of Battenberg, which is his favourite cake as well as mine. And I took it over, I said, there you go, Grandad. Because you can't allow a 101-year-old to wait for their pudding. Well, I just loved the morning after your wedding when we were sat <laughs> having pastries. Uh, mm. And he said, Molly, um, where's the bacon and eggs? <laughs> <laughs> I know, so basically we'd ordered amazing locally made. They were warm when I picked them out the car. Oh my goodness, they were so amazing. I I, I would have put them on my anxiety scale had I not mm. been invested in the banana pancakes. And then I had some uh, vegan yoghurt and fruit and granola. There was It was a nice spread, seeing as we were in mm. a marquee in a field. And he ate one pastry and then demanded a cooked breakfast Bearing in mind, I was still in a field and there, were, there was nothing I could cook with. Plus, I didn't have any bacon or any eggs. I was like, I'm so sorry, Grandad, I don't have bacon and eggs. But you know what? When you are 101, you can demand anything you want and you get away with it. Yeah, I think that's true. Are you looking forward to your honeymoon, Molly? Molly's going on a honeymoon tomorrow, which is very exciting. Yeah, I am really looking forward to it. But currently it is nine in the evening. We're leaving at seven in the morning. Oh, that's early. (laughs) Really early. And um, I'm not packed. And I realised my wildlife camera, which I really want to take, is in my studio, which isn't attached to my house anymore. It's a drive away. Are you going to go and get it? I think I need to get up at about five and get it because our car (laughs) is electric. (laughs) We've got an electric car, so I need to get to my studio and back and then charge it to 100% again. Um, Molly, that's also, so stressful. Can you go and get it this evening? I might do it after this. Depends what time you finish. The other thing is, our car, the range on it is about 110 miles before we need to charge. 
And we are driving to Scotland from Gloucestershire over two days. Basically, we're going to have to keep stopping and charging. It's going to be a real adventure. I'm not even <laughs> sure we've got breakdown cover. I'm slightly worried about the whole thing. And then the last stretch of road, there's no charges anywhere near. It's two-hour drive in a little lane, and there's just no charges and barely any houses. And basically, I might not make it back from this holiday. <laughs> Is it self-catering accommodation you're staying in? Yeah, and that's the other problem. So we've had a really busy week. We got back from the wedding and then I was trying to do bits of work because I had bits to tie up. And um, we were meant to write a meal plan for seven days and then buy everything. And we haven't brought anything, so we've got no food. And we were like, it's okay, we'll stop in Glasgow and get all the food. Turns out there's a massive football match in Glasgow on Saturday, which is the day we'll be driving through, and we can't stop there anymore. Everything, like, honestly, this is not a relaxing honeymoon at the moment. This is actually, like, some kind of adventure. Can you just stop somewhere else tomorrow? There's not that many options, if I'm honest there because then you get into like the mountains it's got to be a better option than turning up and not eating anything for seven days <laughs> there's a village shop but it specializes in long life bread <laughs> but sometimes there'll be like an onion but it, that village shop isn't near the house it's like the next village this aside it mm. is going to be very idyllic and it sounds like a lovely part of the world and i'm very jealous it was number one on my anxiety... Well, no, it was number ten on my anxiety scale when we did holidays. It's your holiday of pushing a little boat out, isn't it? But not too far, because don't like deep water. Just just pushing it out a bit with Winnie and Sam. Little row, and then Although, back, back to shore. We haven't got a boat, and it's the sea and not a lake, so, you know, I'll paddle. Well, I look forward to coming back from the honeymoon and chatting to you about everything... I feel like I need to let you go now. I just didn't quite realise you hadn't packed or gone to the studio or got any food. <laughs> I know, I'm really, really stressed. And I, you yeah, could go food shopping right go. now, you know. They'll, they'll be open. I've just had a, um espresso martinis this evening. So oh, yeah, I can't go. Oh, I can't go to my studio because I've drunk. This, this is, is a nightmare. This is so stressful. Oh, no. I might just go and let you deal with this. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, no. oh, I'm really stressed because I don't want to get up at five in the morning because I've got to help drive to Scotland tomorrow. Do you need the wildlife camera? I, but I, I will just be in my luck because I'll get there and there'll be some kind of lesser spotted something or other. Just buy a really new one. Just buy a, a spare wildlife camera. <laughs> I don't have that much disposability. Can you drive there on the way when you when you're leaving? No, because we've only got a limited amount of miles and we need to get to our first charging station and we can't detour. It's okay. I'll go in the morning, I'll get up early, it will be fine. It will be fine. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to rate and review and you have to be kind because as you've heard today, we don't take criticism very well. So we're not going to appreciate anything other than five star. We have had loads of lovely reviews. I was reading through them the other day. And thank you so much if you have taken the time because it's just a delight reading through them. It is really lovely. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, share it. Share it on Instagram. Share it with your friends. Some people have been so supportive and shared it every episode. And I just can't get over that. It's amazing. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Um, So what do you think our next topic should be for the next episode? Um, what about jealousy? 
Yes, I feel like that could be a really, really long episode. <laughs> Jealousy, part one, part two, part three, and part four. Yeah, yeah, we'll just be in some kind of green jealous heap on the floor <laughs> after all that. No, I think that's a good one. So if you do have any questions you'd like us to discuss in the next episode, do email them to outofinkpodcast at gmail.com. Have an amazing time in Scotland, Molly. I'm going to be really sad because, I mean, you're not going to be able to be voice noting me every second of every day. Um, I do understand, but I will miss you. You know I will still be voice noting you every second of every day. I just don't want (laughs) Sam to hate me. You'll be on your honeymoon and you'll be there like, hang on, I'm just going to voice note our third wheel. Basically, we're on the honeymoon and Sam will be the third wheel. (laughs) Poor Sam having to put up with us. Oh, poor Sam. (laughs)